This sermon is from Edgewood Baptist Church. You can find more information about us online at ebc-edmonds.org. Thanks for listening. What evidence is there for what you believe? Why do you believe what you believe? That's an important question, is it not? This past week I had an opportunity to meet uh, some folks from Edmonds Community College. Julio and I sat down and and talked with them. Spent some time in the University of Washington bookstore looking around. And I thought to myself, there's many in the intellectual communities around us that have a concern. I'm not talking about the individuals that I specifically talked to this week, but there are many, in my experience in the academic world, who have concern that Christianity causes people to turn their brains off. And they don't, they don't examine the facts anymore. They just, I believe it, and that's the way it is. And they see Christians as simple-minded and arrogant. What made me think about that is, when I came home from college, I talked to some folks in the church about some concerns I had about Christianity and the Scripture. And I was told the problem was I was getting too much education. That's scary, isn't it? I can't show it up here, but I have a picture that I took, actually two pictures I took yesterday of some these beautiful trees in blossom. One of them, the roots were still in the ground and it was beautiful. The other one was laying down like this. I shared this in Sunday school class. No, 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 no connection anymore, it had been cut off. And I said it's important that we understand that those aren't the same. They both have blossoms, but they're not the same, right? And a Christianity that's had its mind cut out won't last. Because people cannot rejoice in what their head rejects, what their, what their mind rejects. Would you agree? So why do we believe what we say we believe? Why do we believe it? Just because it makes us feel good? Is there any evidence for the things that we claim to believe as Christians? Now, the interesting thing is, many times in the academic world, there are others who are, who are very closed-minded and arrogant about what they believe. They're absolutely convinced there's no God and the Bible's untrue and all of these things. But I would say to you that we don't fight arrogance with arrogance. Dr. Jeffrey Myers likes to ask the folks he's in conversation with, four questions. First, what do you believe? What is it you believe? Second, why do you believe that? Third, where do you get your information? Important to know, right? And fourth, what happens if you're wrong? Why that question? 
Well, some things in life really don't matter if you're right or wrong about. At least they don't matter much, right? Who forgot to put the ketchup away is really not a life-shattering question. And I think any of us would walk into some arguments and say, you know, this really isn't important. Who cares who left it out? Let's just move on. But then there are things that are really important. If Jesus really rose from the dead or not is, ex is very, very significant. And we're going to be looking at John 20 later today in this message. And if what was said about Jesus' resurrection is true, then Jesus is who he said he was. And that has an amazing impact on our lives. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the whole Christian faith is propped up by lies and deception. Right? So what is the evidence for, for what we believe? C.S. Lewis said that Jesus was either Jesus was either who he said he was, or he was a liar, or he was a lunatic. But in my experience in talking with folks and, and reading, there's many in academic communities that would say that you're missing an option. We're not arguing that he was a liar or a lunatic, we're arguing that he was a legend. That he was a pretty decent guy and they just made up all kinds of stories about these extraordinary things. He was, in their mind, Davy Crockett, kind of. I was recently in Tennessee. We, we went to the home of Davy Crockett. You know much about Davy Crockett? He was a real guy. And there became all these legendary tall tales about what he did. So they would argue, that's, that's how your Jesus is. He's a real guy, maybe, but lots of legends. We're going to talk today about why we, why we don't think that that is the best reasoning. There's some obvious things, by the way. I don't know any religion started in the name of Davy Crockett, do you? I don't know anybody willing to die for Davy Crockett. I'm pretty convinced if someone... <clears throat> was asked, would you denounce this legend or tall tale about Davy Crockett? And if you won't, we're going to kill you. I'm pretty sure they would say, oh, it's just a tall tale. And you've got to ask yourself, why, why were the disciples willing to die for their belief that Jesus truly rose from the dead and was who he said he was? Well, let's back up a little bit and let's start by asking ourselves this question, what must we do to experience the truth? If we really want to not only know the truth, but experience the truth. And the first thing, and it's on your outline there, is I think we need to let go of cherished misconceptions. This is part of the lesson we learn on, on Palm Sunday, right? They were pretty excited about Jesus coming as king. on their terms. But it would be a very short time before he was being crucified. Because he wasn't a king in the way they wanted him to be one. 
We have to let go of cherished misconceptions. What are some of these misconceptions? The belief that we are basically good people who deserve paradise. Oh, we, need, we deserve it. I mean, God owes us an apology that we don't live in a perfect world. I shouldn't have any pain or trouble or heartache. I'm a great person. I should be in a great paradise of the world. And if I'm not, well, somebody ought to explain to me why I'm not. And anybody's going to tell me great and say I deserve all these great things, i got a palm branch, I'll start waving it for them. Second misconception. The belief that our problems will all be solved if our circumstances are changed. If you just put me in different circumstances, wouldn't be any more problems. You know what the problem is? It's the circumstances. Right? This, this, by the way, started way back in the Garden of Eden, if you believe in the Bible. It says that when Adam and Eve sinned, basically Adam's excuse was, this woman that you gave me. You want to give me a different woman? Different result, Lord. So I'm really blaming you. Don't we see that all the time? Well, I can't be happy until I get a new job. We have single people who say, I can't be happy until I get married. We have married people who say, I can't be happy until I get single again. And we all have these things. If just this would happen or just that would happen. And we kid ourselves into believing that our biggest problems are the circumstances around us or maybe even more serious things. If you know, we could just end crime or end this or end that. And this brings me to the third misconception. The belief that we can eradicate evil by our own efforts. We can beat this thing. You know, I think of John 12, 12 through 19 in the triumphant entry where it says, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him, when he called Lazarus, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. There's some people there that were there when Lazarus had been risen, right? And there's always people who say, this is what I want. I, I want, I want, all my problems solved immediately. And if, if your Jesus can do that, then I'm in, right? 
I want a quick fix. So if your Bibles, if you turn to Matthew 16, 13 through 28. We'll see that the Apostle Peter also struggled to understand what Christ needed to do. Here we read, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was, in, he was the Christ. One of my kids, when they're young, got confused about that. That was only for that period of time. We're supposed to tell everybody that Jesus is the Christ now. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to what? Rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will pray each according to what he has done. Truly I say, there are some standing here who will not taste death until you see the kingdom, until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Many things we could talk about there. <clears throat> but Peter rebukes Jesus. You don't need the cross. To this day, there are many who kind of project a crossless Christianity. You, you don't really need to worry that much about that sin thing. Oh, the people who think, we, we just need Jesus to be a good example to us. We just need Jesus to be a good teacher for us. We just need Jesus to, to be a king for us. I mean, but if we're going to embrace truth, we, we must face the sad realities. And that's what we do on Good Friday. We reflect upon the death of Christ and what it means. And when you look at the crucifixion of Christ, you see the evil of fallen mankind, do you not? 
we need to face some sad realities. First, we have underestimated the evil around us. Sometimes we go through our days as like, like, like we're oblivious to just how evil the world is in places. Right? The atrocities that go on. I thought about describing some of them. Frankly, I didn't know if I wanted to wreck your whole day. The past are the stories I've heard over the years. Now, I think on foreign lands right here, places that are supposed to be safe, like a home that became a place of terror. Just was reading in the paper this week of somebody who had abused children. The comments he made were so evil that put a chill down my spine. The evil that we face is, is not to be winked at. We dare not underestimate it. Two, we've underestimated the evil within us, as if it's just somebody else's problem. I think of those two points and I, and I think about if, if I got to heaven, I got to the new heaven and the new earth, and it was just like here, I'd be pretty depressed. How about you? I mean, there's many things that we rejoice in this life about. Although mankind has, has fallen as evil, they're, they're still created in the image of God, and all the image of God has been marred, it hasn't been removed, and there's much we can, we can rejoice in in this life. But I'd be pretty depressed if I got to heaven and there was still as much evil as there is in the world I live in now. How about you? And Jesus has called me to himself and he's become my Lord and Savior and he's forgiven my sins. But I'd be pretty depressed if I got to heaven and I was still exactly like I am today. We've underestimated the, the evil within us. We've made euphemisms. We've domesticated our sins. But the fact of the matter is we don't even live up to our own standards, let alone the standards of God. Three, we've underestimated the cost of eradicating evil. We think if I just try harder, that'll do it. In Romans 3, chapter 3, verses 9 through 26, it says this. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being 
would be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let me just stop here. All the law can teach you, all the things that God's commanded can teach you is that we can't live up to the things we should be living up to. Right? It can show us the holiness and the greatness of God and it can show us that we, we fall short. Right? So, I talk about that in a little booklet I wrote on overcoming barriers to a joyful life. If all people get from church is a lecture on how they ought to be living their lives, they're going to say, I don't need that. Right? You know that scripture that says, search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. That's not where the verse ends. It ends with, and lead me in the way everlasting. For a Christian, the call isn't, just show me where I'm messing up, God. It's show me where I'm messing up. I, I see ways, but there's more ways than I even know. Show me where I'm messing up, Lord, and lead me in the way everlasting. Surround me by people that will encourage me to do the right things. Put your Holy Spirit in me. Help me live different, Lord. That's the cry of a Christian. Because I can't do it on my own strength. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time and so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. <clears throat> I've talked to a lot of people and they've told me, you know, I, I, I go to church but I'm afraid the building would fall in on me if I showed up. I mean, I'm just not the church-going type. And I do some stuff, and, but other people say, I just don't feel worthy to go to church. I think they're a little surprised when I say, well, you're not. Neither am I on our own worthy to be in the presence of God and worship Him. But that's what Christianity is all about. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came for sinners. Jesus came to set us free. If you try to get your life fixed and then come to Jesus, you'll never come. Because the things you're trying to fix, you can't fix. You have to be made holy by the finished work of Christ so that this Holy Spirit can fill you and He be can, can begin creating us into what we already are in Him. That's a lot of theology there, but it's important, isn't it? Let's move to the third point. The evidence is clear. Christ has been victorious over evil. I don't know about you, but I'm not interested in dedicating my life to fairy tales. 
I think we should examine the evidence. We should pray about it. Faith is evidence of things unseen. Faith is not turning off your, your brain. It's turning to God and asking us to help us see clearly. I've said so many times in, in my years of ministry that when the Holy Spirit comes, he renews the mind. He doesn't remove it. The evidence is clear. Christ has been victorious over evil. First, the evidence from world history. And we talked about C.S. Lewis and this idea that he was a liar, a lunatic, and then some now say he's a legend. Well, first, there were eyewitnesses. Over 500 said they saw Jesus after he raised from the dead. You say, well, they all made it up. You know, I can see how somebody might think that people would make up stories about Jesus' resurrection because we have churches in America where it seems like the pastor uses the teaching of Christ just to get mega wealthy, right? But my friends, the apostles didn't get mega wealthy by believing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They got beaten and killed. Now, at some point, you would think you would say, made the whole thing up. I'm out. Two, there's an empty tomb. And there's so much more I'd like to talk, talk about this. You know, the, I went to see the movie Case for Christ last night, and I was thinking about, it just touched on some of the evidences of why we believe in Christ. Some great questions can be raised about it, but I think we need to examine all of, the, all of the evidence. And I would say with Timothy Keller, if you, if you doubt Christ's resurrection, I ask you to doubt your doubt with the same ferociousness that you doubt your, your belief. Does that make sense? I mean, why do I doubt it? Third, so eyewitnesses, empty Tomb, and then the experience of millions of, of people whose lives have been changed by the resurrected Christ. Now I want to turn to, to the Gospel of John. I want to look at the 20th chapter. And I want, to, I want to look at what convinced Peter that Jesus had risen from the dead. Let's read the story. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Let me just say this. We'll talk about this maybe a little bit next week, but if you're making up a story in that period of time, you wouldn't have women be your witness because there was, there was some devaluing of women in the culture, right? Second of all, you wouldn't have all the Gospels tell the story slightly different. I mean, they weren't in contradiction, but there's some differences there. You'd have them tell the story the same way. Now, in the... First day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So she thinks what's happened? Somebody took the body. So Peter 
went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So John is saying, I won the foot race. I was there first, I guess. Um, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth laying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a piece by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now, imagine the scene, some of you know what it was, that they had these tombs, big stones rolled up. I, I, I suspect that Mary hadn't really thought about how she's going to get the storm free. You know, how many move this stone? When she gets there, the stone's back. There's body's not there. She runs. She goes to tell Peter and John. There's more details to the story if you read the other Gospels, but let's just stick here. They, they run there, right? As they get there, disciple looks in. He doesn't go in. He just looks in. He sees, he sees the, the linens there that had been around the body of Jesus. Here comes Peter. Just like Peter. Just right in there. There's a word in the Greek we can, we can use for see that just, just means looked at. The word they use for Peter looking at it is more of kind of a theorizing looking at. And then when we see what um, happens later, when we see what John saw, or the other disciple, that word for saw is saw in a way that came to understanding, okay? So, so what happens is there's something about the grave clothes, there's something about these linens that convinced them that Jesus has risen from the dead. I used to entitle this uh, thought that I'm talking about right now is, what do the grave clothes say? They say Jesus has risen from the dead. Why? <laughs> okay, if you're going to steal the body, you're not going to unwrap it. There's all, all of these... Spices, you know, the weight of it would be immense. And the understanding is, this is, this is apparent that the body just came out of this, right? You certainly, you wouldn't have time to unwrap it. If Jesus was just, you know, really injured but not dead, somehow miraculously he, he not only unwraps himself from his grave clothes, pushes the rock away, um, and convinces everybody that he's the risen Messiah, I think that's hard theory to sell, but these clothes tell us a different story, don't they? Boom, he's come out. And over here's the wrapping that was on his head. I don't know where you are in your journey. I believe there's some here that need to look again at those grave clothes and all the other evidence and let your minds fix on the truth that Jesus has risen.
And so this week, as we, as we go through Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and we think about what's happened, we can think, this really happened. For some, you're still examining the evidence. You don't know Jesus is your Lord and Savior. You're not sure about it. I encourage you to study the evidence for the resurrection. There's not only these external evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's the, the evidence from personal history. I'm a different person because Jesus rose from the dead. First Peter 1, 3-7 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be a born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. That verse is for all who by grace put their faith in Jesus Christ. Ask Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. Reveal yourself to me completely and fully, Lord, and fill me with your Spirit. doesn't matter the exact words. What matters is we acknowledge the fact that we're a sinner. We acknowledge the fact that Jesus died for our sins. We acknowledge the fact that he rose again, and we surrender our lives to him. I pray that you'll make that decision and check the box on the connection card, and we'd love to talk to you more about that if you have never done that. Regardless if you know Jesus or don't, I, I encourage you to study the evidence for his resurrection. And third, on your connection card, if you have it out there, there's, there's that box that says, I believe the Lord is leading me to. We love hearing what God's stirring your heart towards. There is a box there that says, memorize 1 Peter 3.3. 3. Now, Clint called to my attention that that was a typo error. I didn't even realize it was in there that way. It's supposed to be 1 Peter 1.3, which you can see here, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Seems like a good verse to memorize. First Peter 3.3 3 is not to ordain yourself with outward things like the braiding of hair, I'm paraphrasing, but with inward beauty. So, Plant wanted to know about uh, why in this message he was being taught about not braiding his hair. <laughs> Uh, as the only means of, of showing the beauty of God in his life. So I do encourage you to think through those connection cards. And I encourage you to invite some folks. You see on your connection card, there's a box there. I brought a friend with me today. We believe that what we rejoice in and what we love, we'll share. There's certainly other great churches where people can hear about Jesus. Jesus. 